In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. When we read the Revelation chapter 2, verses 1, I'm just going to volunteer. Okay. I volunteer. Okay. <laughs> Since you proposed that. Someone. One until one until done was the first church. First church of Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in the in the right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the... Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Okay. And to the angel of the church... Just go quickly over the church of Ephesus. Again, um, <coughs> Ephesus means what? Beloved, this is an open book uh, quizzes, it's it's very easy. Uh, Again, we said that here, who holds the seven angels, uh, seven stars, each star represents the bishops, so this is not uh, a normal human being, so again, most of the old descriptions in the book of Revelations are relative and symbolic, they're not actual. Because if you look at it, seven you know stars or seven planets, who can hold these planets in his hand, and how big the person would be, how many light years he's tall. So it's not really a human being, but more uh, representation of the power of Jesus Christ, and uh, he's bringing these bishops close to himself. Uh, and. We said that despite all the actions, all the labors, all the activities, all the things that this person have done for Christ, and how much you know Christ you know, uh, tries to remember all these good things as He promised before, I will not forget even a cup of cold, you know, a cup of water on, on my name's sake. So he's, He remembers all these activities for this bishop, but again, He holds against this bishop the, that He forgot or He left the first love and. Uh, it's really uh, very interesting how the Lord depicts that uh, that despite that this is really a, you know, a serious issue the Lord puts it, I have something against you as if he puts it as a small thing and he keeps you know, making a big thing out of all the work that this bishop has done but when he comes to this you know, rebuking him he doesn't start by rebuking him you know, seriously and as we're going to see also with the other bishops, some of them, he has very strong things against them. But he, when he mentions it, 
he mentioned in a loving way, uh, he approached them in a loving way, and then after he reproached them, he still remembers, he goes back, oh, by the way, I still have for you that you still, uh, you hate the Nicolaitans. So, this is the way our Lord approaches uh, the people, approaches the sinners. Uh, and that's how we should learn from our Master, from our Lord, how to approach people, how to talk to people, and how to uh, re- reproach them and bring to their attention what we have against them. And we commend on love and that without love, all the deeds we do are nothing. And we talked specifically about the first love and the importance of the first love. But this is you know, the peak of the emotions that usually gets attached and gets affected quickly. And we should dedicate that to the Lord Jesus Christ and not to other people. Uh, repentance. Again, repent, remember from where you have fallen, repentance is an important thing. Our church looks at repentance as it's a lifelong journey. Some other sects, you know, other Christians look at repentance as, you know, You've done it once, you saved, and then you know you move on. We don't, we don't see that. No matter where you are, this is this is the bishop in the church. It's not just you know the guy who's joined the you know the faith recently. He's a bishop. He's been doing a lot of work. He's been suffering, you know, for the sake of Christ and so on. And despite all that, he still needs to repent and he needs to go back and examine himself and examine how he does things and his relationship to Christ. So. To us, repentance is a lifelong journey and it's not once, you know, you do it once and then, you know, you're done. Okay. The, the warning that the Lord gives to this bishop, again, last time we talked about this in more uh, in depth, I will remove your lampstand. And this actually happened. If you go back and try to find the church of Ephesus today in Turkey, it's gone. If there's anything, you know, there are going to be very few people left uh, in the thousand, couple of thousand or less, not the hundreds of thousand, you know, or large number there used to be. So the conclusion we have from this church is that no love leads to less attachment to Christ. Less attachment to Christ leads, leads to less adherence to Christ, to his, you know, to the commandments, and that leads to full separation. And if you remember... What Christ said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, uh, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done to you. So basically, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So that's how we know that we love Christ. Uh, We talked about the Nicolaitans because they're going to be mentioned several times in you know, a couple of the other churches. Uh, a lot of people attribute that heresy to one of the seven deacons. Uh, Nicolaus, one of the seven deacons that was chosen to serve with the apostles, uh, he fell into a heresy. He says that the body basically can commit whatever sin they want as long as the spirit does not commit the sin. And of course, that led to a lot of... Uh, wrong things to do and uh, a lot of immoral things to be done so uh, though he started his faith and he started his service in the proper way he did not finish it in the proper way and that's why the church the bible teaches us look at the end of their lives and resemble them we should wait until the people we like pass away 
you know, and know that they have followed and adhere to the faith all the way to the end properly, and then we start sort of copying them. We have the saints that already know that they have finished the faith in an appropriate way and have struggled correctly and have achieved, you know, uh, the proper status and, the, you know, so we can follow them, which is a lot uh, easier and safer than following contemporary people. And that leads a lot of times to problems. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is an important thing because that's going to be repeated seven times. And the church really focuses on this uh, a lot. Uh, the deacon says that before reading the gospel. Uh, stand up and, you know, listen, you know, to the Holy Gospel. And the church prays that, you know, uh, to hear and to act you know, according to God's word. And when Christ was preaching, he always said, this was an ear, let him hear. So what is being asked? We all hear the words. We all listen to the words. We come to church and, you know, I'm sure all of us have heard thousands of sermons in our lifetime. But what is be really being asked of us? It's the active listening. And I listen to something and don't just, you know, listen to it and let it, you know, just go through or, oh, that was a nice word that's being said or this guy is boring or, you know, whatever we judge about, you know, the person who speaks. We don't stand at the word that's being said. We try to take that and apply it to us. As, you know, uh, Abu Mark was saying in one of, one of those times that, you know, when it comes to listening to the word of God, don't be too generous, you know, and you give the word of God you know, God to other people. Oh, this guy needs to hear this. You know, if this person was here, this would have been perfect for him. You end up giving away everything you heard, but not keeping anything to yourself, and not benefiting yourself. So what Christ is asking us to do is to hear and to do. Okay. A couple of other important points here. Um, this, he, to him who overcomes... Which means that we're in constant war and there's always a struggle. And you are expected to fight this war. The devil is not going to let you become a saint overnight and easily. He's going to be fighting tooth and nail and you know, trying to make you fall. So it's a war. And anybody who tells you otherwise is not being honest to you. But we saw that this bishop has already forsaken his first love, he's already sort of, you know, becoming uh, kind of lukewarm in his, you know, relationship with God, and he's doing a lot of acts, but there's no, not a lot, a lot of love. Do we expect such a person to overcome? Well, that gives us hope. Christ is giving him this will overcome, I will give him and grant him, and you know, there's a lot of nice rewards being given there. It's not just warning, there's also rewards. So even in my worst case of spiritual life, and we, later on we're going to see one of the bishops of the church, Christ tells him that, you know, you're, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead, you know, you're naked, you're, you know, blind, and, you know, in a very bad situation, and all this, and he tells him who over, who, he who overcomes. So 
regardless of where we are in our spiritual life, whether we have fallen once, a hundred times, or whatever, we're still, Christ is telling us, he who overcomes, I will give him. Now, the issue is, can I overcome by myself? Are we preaching that deeds are the, the ones that are going to get us to heaven, and I can do everything by myself and overcome sin by myself? Is this what we're trying to say? No, because we know that by ourselves we're not going to be able to overcome Satan. And we all have tried to fight sin by ourselves, you know, and I'm not, you know, most likely we're not successful. So what is God asking this bishop to do? And asking all these bishops to do, and asking each one of us to do? We need to try, we need to take the decision, we need to take the first step and come close to Christ and change our way. Repentance is changing the way. Metania is basically a changing of direction. That's what the word metania means. So what Christ is expecting us to do is we take the decision and we change the direction and He's going to come help us and give us the strength and give us the power to overcome Satan. He knows that He's the one who's going to overcome Satan in us. But He can't come and invade us without our, you know, without our free will, without us requesting Him to overcome Satan in our life. We need to be the ones who are asking Him to come and be victorious in our lives. So that's going to be a key thing for all these bishops in their struggle because we're going to see some of them really have a very bad situation and we should not expect them to overcome by themselves. I will give to eat the tree of life. The tree of life was mentioned in Genesis and this is different than the tree of knowing good and evil. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve ate from which tree? Good and evil. Right? And as we go back to Genesis and, and read here, you know, God said that, uh, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So, God was concerned that if Adam and Eve will eat from the tree of life and live forever, they will live in their sinful state. So that's why, as a na- also as a natural result you know, of sin, death became part of the world and death became part of the solution as well, is that when we die and then be resurrected in Christ, we have another chance to go to heaven. If we have lived forever in a sinful situation, we couldn't have changed. Okay. So, who is the tree of life? Christ. Because Christ. He is life itself. So, the tree of life is Christ, and a sample of that we get every Sunday at the altar that we get to receive communion. However, this does not mean that there will be communion at heaven. But we will be filled and nourished from knowledge of Christ and knowing Christ and being with Christ all the time. And that's the ultimate reward of, you know, people who love each other is to be together always. Uh, And that's going to be our ultimate reward is to be with Christ. And I, I want you to be careful... When we're reading the rewards of each of these bishops, there's no mention of, you know, 
food and drink and, you know, uh, milk and honey and, you know, big grapes that, you know, two people have to carry it and all these things that the Millennium Rain people talk about. All the promises we have here are spiritual promises and the main promise we get is Christ himself. And that gives, you know, one of the answers that talks to the people who are uh, promoting the millennium reign and, uh, you know, uh, the rapture and all these things is that all these promises of these bishops, uh, for at least, you know, when we're going to look at the Church of Samaria, that this bishop was, you know, he was living in poverty because all possessions were taken from the Christians, Christ could have told him, look, when I come back again, after the rapture and after the millennium reign, I'm going to give you lots of money and you're going to be very rich and you're going to live very comfortable, so don't worry about it. That's not what Christ did. That's not the reward that Christ promised. So we need to keep that in mind because later on when we get you know, in more advanced chapters, we're going to talk more and more about the rapture and millennium reign and you know, this big heresy that's going around us these days. Let's read the, the second church, the church of Smyrna. Who's going to read that? Verse 
They don't have time to worry about heresies. They don't have time to worry about uh, being involved in politics. They don't have you know time to to waste anything else. They're trying to protect their faith. They're trying to protect, bring people close together so they can be one united church and defend the faith that way. So they don't, you don't find any of the other problems that the other churches, churches are facing. They don't have love to God, they're not going to stay in the faith. So a persecuted church is a loving church. And one of the benefits that Egypt had compared to other countries is a long, long persecution era. What we're going through right now might be just another phase of persecution and you know it depends on where you are in this how you see things and how you see God's hand in things you can say that this is a horrible thing and the United Nations should come in and you know the armies of the world and blah 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 or you can say that this is another way for us to repent and come close to Christ and those who are far come close and what we witness in Egypt usually when there are really severe problems and the church calls for fasting and prayers and all that the churches are packed. Little kids are fasting till like three, you know, four p.m. and so on. Normal times, no persecution, nothing. Nobody fasts. You know, attendance in church is not as much, and all these things. So God doesn't allow persecution on the churches except for a purpose. And if you look worldwide, the church worldwide is being, you know, attacked and persecuted today, uh, even here. When Christmas symbols and so on being attacked and the word Christmas is, you know, Christ is being taken out of everything. That's a persecution to the church. But do people feel that the church is persecuted and they go about it in the proper way by fasting and praying and getting close to Christ or they go about it in different ways? Again, these are the different churches that we're studying and we see how each church was dealing with the situation around it. This was a persecuted church. We're going to see here uh, poverty because they're Belongings are taken away. We have people being, uh, you know, hurt and martyred. So this church didn't have time to worry about these things. But at the same time, Christ didn't have nothing against it. So which, you make your choice. Which church you want to be in? Which spiritual state you want to be in? Okay. So let's look at how Christ appeared. And to the angel of the church... The, to, of the church of Smyrna write the first and the last who became dead and lived says these things so if you know that the, the state of this church or the problem that this church is facing is persecution and the Lord says the first and the last who became dead and lived he talks about his resurrection he talks about that he also shared like they are the suffering and the death but He's telling the bishop and he's telling the people of the church, I want you to focus on the resurrection and not on what you know goes before that. St. Paul reminds us that in order to be glorified with him, we have to be crucified with him. So to go to that path, we have to start from the cross and we have to see going through the cross by itself, if we see only the cross and the end is at the cross, right? then it becomes very hard, you know, not pleasant at all, no hope, no faith, nothing. But the end is at resurrection. 
And that's why Mel Gibson, for example, the last shot in his movie was the resurrected Christ. He didn't end it at the cross. He ended with the resurrection because this is our faith and our hope. And this is what's going to get us through the tribulations and through the suffering that we see. And that's why the Lord appeared here as, you know, reminding the church as he's the one who was dead. And now he lives. Again, I know your works and tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Okay. So, poverty here because they have taken away the material things. It looks like it's been a habit since for 2,000 years that they rob the Christians and take their belongings and assume that, you know, whatever they take from the Christians is, you know, halal, even from the first days of Christianity. Uh, that's one of the reasons but also St. Paul says that you know as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor yet making many rich with their relationship with Christ and their faith they're making many rich and despite uh, what's, what they're going through so again it's a question for you we can be materially rich and have lots of money and lots of things and we can be suffering and going through some hard times, but the Lord sees us as rich. Which one would rather be? Um, and I know the blasphemy of those saying themselves to be Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. That's a very harsh word to be said about those who used to be to be called God's chosen people, right? The, the Jews in the Old Testament were God-chosen people. But this here shows that God have really uh, rejected them after they rejected Him. And now they're called the synagogue of Satan. Uh, it's a warning for us uh, that what is, how does God see us? And when St. Paul was a Jew, he was persecuting Christians, he was you know going around agreeing to the death of you know uh, Stephen and had letters to go to Damascus and kill the Christians and get them to jail and so on that was all these actions were against God against you know his will and that's why when Christ appeared to him he told him why do you persecute me okay. so hopefully we never turn to be the synagogue of Satan, that we turn against Christ. We think, we, you know, we still think we're doing the right thing, but in reality, we're not being true Christians, and we're not really living the true faith, but pretend to be, or act as if we are Christians only. Well, if anybody has comments, you know, feel free to share. Do not fear. Right. At, do not at all fear. Again, how many times the word do not fear appeared in the Bible? As some people counted it. I have not counted it myself. I just, you know, some people told me that. Uh, so don't quote me on this one. Uh, how, many, how many times appeared in the Bible? 365 days, one day a week. One day, one, once per day, you know, in the year. So that, to remind us that despite what's going to happen, God is always with us and we should not be afraid. Behold, the devil will cast some of you into prison so that you may be tried and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful to this. I will give you the crown of life. 
there's nothing here, you know, have against you or any of these things. Um, and the devil will cast some of you into prison. So who is the real motive and real, real mover behind the persecution? It's the devil. It's not this group or that group. It's not this government or that government. It's really the devil that's behind that. So our reaction to the persecution should be more spiritual than political. At least that's my personal opinion. Uh, tribulation, ten days. Some, some of the fathers said the ten days represents the ten uh, Roman emperors that were during that time there was severe persecution to the Christian, and then ended up with you know um, Constantine declaring Christianity is uh, legal religion of the state. This can be ten eras, can be ten. Uh, Governments can be, you know, 10 periods, but the number 10 is a complete number and just represents the full persecution that the Church of God will go through throughout history, basically. <coughs> Crown of life. Again, the same thing. Again, the promise here is related to Christ and St. James tells us, you know, blessed is the man who endures temptation because having been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Okay. which the Lord has promised for those who love him. So again, the reward is correspondent and relates to the state of the church. The church was poor and persecuted. And the reward is the crown, which represents richness, and also the crown of life, which is also is Jesus Christ himself, that will crown us and make us you know, uh, in need of nothing else. And he is sufficient for everything that we need he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches he who overcomes will not be heard by the second death okay. the second death there are two deaths and two resurrections right? or two births and two deaths and actually what's the first birth our natural birth and the second one is the spiritual birth from baptism. The first death is our natural death, the physical death. But the second death, which is more horrifying, is if we die spiritually and end up be going to hell. So hopefully all of us will go through the first death, but none of us will go through the second death. And also there is the first resurrection, and then the second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection from sin and, you know, the baptismal. People also see it as that, the first resurrection. And the second resurrection is when Christ comes and we're all resurrected with him. So the second death is not mandatory. We're not all going to go through that. Hopefully none of, you know, none of the people here will go through this, the second death. And there's no resurrection of the from the second death. And that's what Christ is warning from. He who overcome will not be hurt by the second death. So this is the one thing that should be concerned about and worried about, and not the first death. Because the first death, we're all going to die. Whether it's through persecution, through old age, through heart attacks, through, you know, whatever, we're all going to die the first death. But the key thing is, are we ready for the second resurrection when it happens? Or are we going to be dead when Christ comes.
And again, some people misunderstand this word, the second death, and try to say that the the evildoers, we will, they will die, they will not go to hell, there's nothing called hell, they will just die, and they will not suffer, and they will not exist anymore. They will not feel anything, they will not exist anymore. This is not true. Because if life is Christ, what is death? Separation from Christ. And that's why Adam and Eve died, because they separated themselves from God. And hence we all died because we separ- you know, we were separated from God. So the second death is eternal hell, and that's their separation from God, you know, God himself. So the reward for the victorious people, and that's why we call the church in heaven is a victorious church. What's the reward? It's not food, it's not turkeys, it's not, you know, big houses, none, none of these things, you know, it's Christ himself. And hell is, you know, one of its aspects is separation from, from God. Okay. Some of the, uh, you know, some of the other fathers see that the, you know, first death is the death of sin and the first birth is repentance, which is a continuous act. Uh, and the second birth is resurrection and the second death is eternal condemnation. Yes. change in, in, our, in our eternal life when we're in heaven or when we're yes because until the second coming happens we don't end up to be in heaven or in hell we're just in a temporary place uh, whoever dies now is going to go you know to the paradise or to Hades it's a temporary waiting place until the final coming and we're going to see that actually in the book of Revelation we're going to see later on that the, those who died are under the altar waiting for the final coming and the, you know, the final judgment where everyone is going to take according to their deed. But so, yes, yes. But it's a waiting, it's not the final, the final, you know, place. There's no chance. No, no, like, I'm not, I'm not familiar with Catholic, like, like, it's not, you can't change your... You can't change... Dead, you're dead, you're dead. Exactly. The ten uh, versions, right? The five wise and the five not-so-wise, when they were outside and they you know, ran out of oil, they couldn't, you know, get in. And uh, Rich and Lazarus, when the rich man was trying to beg Abraham to send Lazarus or send anything you know, to comfort him, he couldn't. He knew he was wrong. He knew he was not righteous at that time. And I'm sure he repented when he was in hell and burning. So he couldn't change. Yes? Why does it say that the people know what is wrong and does it with the Does 
this who does not know evil but he does it Do you know what that is? You know what the verse is? Okay. Can can you get me that verse so we can you know look at it more carefully? Sometimes you need to read it in context and see what's going on. Okay. All right. All right. So are we done with the first two churches? So again, let's review quickly. Yes. That's no, okay. This one, that sin is death. So we're all born, in a way, dead, right? And we're, we're, you know, we are resurrected, or when we are, you know, into baptism, we are resurrected again right? we're reborn again some people see it you know uh, resurrected and some people see it as you know born again in baptism uh, again w- this is you know the interpretations I find you know in the books uh, again the references we, uh, I said before the references are you know three references Abuna Tadros uh, Baba Lectures of Sunni Somebody had the CDs. Somebody had the CDs. Was you know was the. Mina told me to give him to him, but he's not here. He told me he'd call me. And he never called. So okay, my excuses, excuses. I'm not even okay. I saw him. That's okay. And I told Mina, and he never called. Mashaallah, mashaallah. Again, this particular one. You can argue what is the first death and what is, you know, the first birth and so on. But the second death is quite clear. Right? There's no arguments about that one. So we can have different interpretations. As you can see here, there's different ways to interpret the first death is. Yeah, we're, we're all going to die. Right? <laughs> Alan? Is it wrong to say that, that, that that's interpreted for individuals and as, a, as mankind... We are born, like, as mankind, Adam's death was our first death, but in terms of individuals, we're born dead, so since we're born dead, it doesn't really count as a death. Uh, you can look at the whole thing as a spiritual, yes, spiritually, you know, the first yeah, spiritual death, and then the second spiritual death, yes, and the first spiritual birth, and the second spiritual, you know, or the first spiritual resurrection, and the second spiritual resurrection, yes, you can look at that. But if we look at it from a personal point of view, again, in this way, you know, in this Bible study, you know, I'm trying to be a little bit selfish, you know, what's in it for me personally? I'm going to die, and hopefully I'll be, you know, either resurrected again, or, you know, I hope not die again. (coughs) So, next one, I have to struggle to achieve the second resurrection, right? And we're going to see later on that, you know, my name is already written. You just have to keep it there. I mean, even Christ said in the parable of the prodigal son, and I said, my son was dead and now is alive again. 
that's on the spiritual and yeah. look at that on the spiritual side and that's why some of the fathers when they look at the first death they consider that a sin is the first death and repentance and you know baptism is you know the first birth as well so th- there are different interpretations for this again there are certain things that would not be clear cut answers that you know different ways of looking at it and we will try to cover most of what you know a lot of times, if there are multiple interpretations and they both, all of them are logical, you know, they're presented. Sometimes there are some interpretations that the majority of the modern fathers sort of, you know, put them to the side. You know, I don't go through them because if we're going to go with everything, with all its possibilities, we'll be here for ages and ages, and you guys are all going to be old, and your kids are going to come with you, and you know. Alright. So in the next church, pergamus. Pergamus means marriage. Gamos, you know, monogamy. Gamos is you know, same root, and um, it means marriage. And here, again, a lot of the the fathers see that as the. Anybody had a Nissan Maxima? The state of the church here is, you know. Marriage between the state and the the church. So let's read about the church of Pergamus and see what it is and try to understand what it means. Okay, and to the verse twelve. Until verse 17. Can somebody read that for us? <laughs> and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things say, He who has a sharp two edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan is going. And you hold fast to my name, and do not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was not faithful in the heart. He was killed among you, where Satan dwelt. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balak, taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of manipulation, which they might hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has any fear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is the church where Satan's seat is, and the, as you can, you know, we heard that the teaching of the church here is not that pure. There are two wrong teachings teaching, the teaching of Balak and teaching of Nicolaitans, and we're going to go through them right now and uh, understand what each of them said, and because the, the teaching is wrong and the church is afflicted by this wrong teaching, the Lord appears as, you know, with the two-edged sword, and remember how the, the Lord appeared to John in the ch- first chapter? Okay. 
Yes, I want you to tell me. <laughs> the ta- you know, the tongue was a, you know two-edged sword, it's a, you know two-edged sword, and we said that this is the word of God, and the two edges, one heals and one, you know, uh, condemns, and uh, basically, if you don't follow it, uh, we are condemn ourselves. The bishop here might be curious was, you know, mentioned by Eusebius, uh, and again, they tried to relate that to actual people who, uh, who, who are the, these actual bishops. All right. And to the angel church in Pergamus write, he who has the sharp sword with two edges says these things. So, to combat the wrong teaching, the Lord appears with two edge, you know, the two edge sword. First edge cleans, and comforts, and the second edge rebukes and condemns. So, if I am a person who is living in sin, and I hear, for example, you know, the commandment, do not steal, or do not uh, commit adultery, or any of these things that I'm living in, one of two things, either I'm going to take that as a, a rebuke to me, and you know, start cleaning my life, or I'm going to take that, and I'm going to rebel against it, and that's what a lot of people do, Unfortunately, these days, they're rebelling against God's word. They're trying not to listen to God's word. And unfortunately, God's word here is condemning them and putting them in a situation that, okay, this is the commandment. This is what you're supposed to be following. And whether you want to hear it or not, this is what the truth is. Uh, I can pretend that I'm not hearing anything. I'm not, you know, I can pretend that you know, none of these commandments are addressed to me. This does not change the reality that God's commandments are rebuking me and are addressing me. At the same time, I can you know, read the word of God and becomes as a source of comfort to me. If I'm going through a problem or uh, having any struggle in my life, I can read any of the Psalms or any of God's you know, nice promises that some of you are collecting from this book. And I go through it and it you know, leads me into... Uh, a more comforted state and become more of aware, more aware of God's love to me and His relationship with me, and leads me more to the path of righteousness. Right. But it also shows something else: that heresies and wrong teaching, God does not tolerate easily. If you, all, you all know that Athanasius, he was fighting by himself, you know, almost by himself, the Arian heresy. And even the king and, you know, a lot of the bishops, a lot of people follow, you know, Arius. And it seems to be like St. Athanasius by himself was the one who's fighting that. But if you read this verse carefully, God does not tolerate heresies. So who's standing next to St. Athanasius fighting this heresy was God's word and God's, you know, sharp two-edged sword. And that's how he was able to come overcome the word. Right? And they told him, the word is against you. He said, you know, and I'm against the word. Right? So this can be one way. And that was also the severity of heresies and wrong ideas. And we should not tolerate any of these, you know, things in our church or in our lives. Again, I know your work and where you live, even where Satan's seat is. And this is a scary part. God says, I know your work, I know your works, and I know where you live. So God knows where each one of us live. 
he knows your address and the somebody can somebody remind me where else did, did that happen where did God tell an address of a person book of Acts to, to who Hanania the address of Hanania so God knows your address okay he knows where you live he knows you know I'm sure he visited you. He knows your room, how does it look like. So the question is, what does that room look like? If God come and visit you into that room, what is he going to find? If he comes to your house, what is he going to find? He's going to find his, you know, his pictures. He's going to find his saints there welcoming him. Or he's going to find, what is he going to find? Right? We had this kit. I think we copied that from, you know, ECYC one time. We did that here. Is that, you know... Christ appears, you know, and comes and visits a young man and he goes to his room and the young man has a lot of these, you know, magazines and a lot of these tapes that, you know, he's ashamed of and he tries to cover it away from Christ. And he wanted to go out to a date and whatever, so what he ended up doing is he ended up nailing Christ in order to go out on his date. So, if Christ comes to our room, what are we going to do? rush and hide things away from him or you know ask him to come sit next to us and explain to us what we're reading or or what something for us to think about even where Satan's seat is this must be a horrible place right uh, Satan is sitting there which means what does what does Satan's seat means the Satan sits on a chair Just to make it easier, you know, more understandable. When said, you know, God sits, you know, on the, you know, on the share of being. What does it mean? He actually gets, you know, four share of being, and he sits on them, where he dwells, because he feels comfortable, because this, this feels, this is his place. So this is where he dwells, right? This is where he feels, you know, when you go and sit somewhere. You're comfortable to sit in that place. Right? Uh, you don't care whether you have a seat uh, in the train or not because this is a temporary you know, trip. But you care that you have a seat in your office or where you work because that's going to be a long time you're, you're sitting there. So you want to be comfortable and you want to sit there. So if God sits in my heart or God sits in my life, this means that he's comfortable, that this is a, you know, a place that he can dwell in and he can sit in. It's the same thing. Where Satan dwell means Satan's seed is, this is where Satan dwells, which means that Satan is very comfortable. He can do whatever he wants, and nobody's going to object to his doing. Actually, they're going to encourage that. They're going to welcome Satan to do whatever he wants there. It's his city. Right? Sin city. I guess. But let's see. Even in that place, there are pl- people who did not, you know, uh, deny Christ. You hold fast my name and have not denied my faith, even in those days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain, (coughs) among you were Satan dwells. So even this bad, evil place, there are still people who hold the faith, there are still people who are martyred, and it's not all you know, free reign for Satan. 
So, <coughs> I hope this is not the beginning of. We need to bribe Ray so we can turn on the ACs, <laughs> the heater. Um, so, even in the worst place, there are still God's people there. Don't you ever think that you are the only saint left on earth? Or you're the only saint left in this place? Or you're the only saint left in the church? That everybody else in this church have forsaken God and you're the only one left who's really righteous and really knows what the true God is and what the true faith is. Because if we go uh, to First Kings, when Rahab and Elizabeth reigned and ruled and then, you know, Elijah was... Uh, facing them and then he ran away uh, in the desert after this big confrontation with the prophets of you know, Baal and so on and he slaughtered 450 of them he ran away from you know Isabel uh, he went and you know he met God face to face face to face and God asked him Elijah why are you running away and he told him you know I'm the only one left you know that worshiped you and God answered him and told him you know very strange answers. Um, yet I have left 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. So in every place, God had his people who maintain, you know, their love to him and their adherence to his faith. Even in Egypt. Sometimes in Egypt, you know, they say that, you know, a lot of people, or majority of the Christians were not were lukewarm and they were weak in their faith and God used to reign on Egypt just because of the prayers of Amber Waste. So even one person that maintained the faith was a reason of blessings for a whole country like Egypt. God still bless this world today that we're living in because there's a lot of righteous people who are living there. Maybe we don't know them. Maybe we don't see them. Maybe it's you know somebody who sits in the last bench in the church that because of this person God is blessed, has blessed this whole church you know, because of this one person that we don't know of. Elijah here was the one who's running, you know, the war against the Baal. And he didn't know that there were 7,000 people, you know, were still following God as he does. So even where Satan is, there's still people who follow God. But I have few things against you. Because you have there those who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit fornication. Again, few things. See how kind God is. He says few things, but if you look at the warning and you look at the, you know, what God is going to do, He's going to be very strict, and you know, He's going to come in and remove this church. But he's, when He rebukes. The bishop tells him, I have few things. Okay. Uh, how, how many people know the story of Balaam? How many people do not know the story of Balaam? Okay, just to go quickly. Balaam was, you know, a prophet of God. He was not from the people of Israel. He was, let's say, some people call him, you know, magician. Some people call him a prophet. He was the best person in that area that God was able to use to carry his message. 
he used to see visions from God and he used to see, you know, he used to talk to God and so on. But he was not clean from the inside. So what happened? When the people of Israel were moving through, you know, Egypt and, you know, uh, Sinai and uh, the Promised Land and, you know, erasing all nations in front of them, because what God used to tell them, uh, Balak, the king, you know, came and, you know, asked uh, Balaam, come and prophesy for me, curse these people, and I'll give you lots of money. So Balaam, you know, said, lots of money, hey, great. They said, hey, I cannot do anything, I'm a, you know, a prophet of God, so I cannot do anything by myself, I have to ask God first what to do. So he went and prayed and asked God, what should I do? God told him, look, these people I have blessed, so you cannot curse them, so don't go. So he went and, you know, apologized to the king messenger, told him, look, I cannot come with you. Uh, God told me not to come and not to curse these people. So he didn't go. So the king became more anxious. So he sent and doubled, tripled the money that he's going to pay for him if he cursed these people. So, he, you know, Balaam went back and said, God, these guys are coming in with lots of money. Should I go? And God, you know, became furious at him and told him, to go but don't say anything except what I put in your mouth. So he went. On his way there, this is the only place in the Bible where an animal spoke. He was riding his donkey, and then, you know, the angel of God appeared, you know, in front of the donkey. And, you know, the donkey was veering away. And at one time, it was going to crush Balaam's leg into, you know, the rocks. So Balaam started hitting the donkey really hard. So the donkey talked to him and told him, why are you doing that to me? Don't you know that, you know, I've always served you uh, properly and I never, you know, did anything wrong? And he said, yeah, but you know, you are going to hurt me. He said, you know, can't you see what I'm seeing in front of me? So God finally opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord in front of him. And the angel of the Lord told him, you know, uh, I was going to, you know, if you have killed this donkey, I would have, you know, killed you on the spot. But go and don't say anything except what I tell you. So this is the only, if anybody asks you, where is the donkey spoke? Again, this is in the book of Numbers. Between 25 and 31. This is the story of Balaam and Balak, the king of Moab. So Balaam goes there, and the king of you know, Moab gets him, tells him, okay, here are the people of Israel. Curse them. He stands up, and he opens his mouth, and he prophesies about the coming of Christ, and he blesses this nation. So... Balak becomes, you know, really angry. He takes him to another place. Again, the same thing happens. He prophesies about the, you know, the coming of Christ and, you know, the blessings that the whole world is going to receive from this, in particular, you know, miracle. And he blesses these people until, you know, the king really gave up and he was really upset that, you know, he brought this prophet to curse these people. But instead of, you know, cursing them, he blessed them. So Balak really want, you know, I'm sorry. Balaam wanted to get the money. So what did he do? As a man of God, he knew that God will bless the people as long as they follow him. So what's the best way to bring God's anger and God's wrath on these people? Let them sin. How to let them sin? Fall into fornication and adultery. Idolatry. So he advised uh, Balak, the king of Moab, to send the girls of Moab on the Israelites 
to seduce them, let them commit adultery, and then get them to worship the idols. And on that day, it's like, you know, 24,000 people died on one day because of, you know, uh, disease. God was really angry with them, and he sent a disease, and he killed almost like 24, 25,000 people. I don't remember the exact number uh, in, one, in one day. So that's the advice of Balaam. Okay. That he, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit fornication. So here also we see that the gradual increase in sin. First, if you advise someone to commit sin, you carry also the ways of sin. You become a stumbling block and then you are, you know, cursed and you receive the punishment because you became a stumbling block for a person. And here we see a gradual increase into sin first eating things sacrificed to the idols and then committing fornication so adultery usually happens after a person is relaxed and comfortable and he ate and you know now he's looking for something else uh, to do that's why if you're fasting usually it's a lot easier to overcome uh, these thoughts and to overcome uh, lust and so on Another interesting thing here. Here, the bishop himself did not commit any crime, did not sin. He did not lose his first love. He did not do anything wrong. The only thing he did is he was not strong enough, or he was not strict enough with heresies and wrong teaching. And his people are the ones who sinned and the ones who committed the adultery and so on. And that's why the priest and the bishop are responsible if they, you know, for our sins even okay, if we commit them and they do not commit them. So it can have a righteous person, right, completely righteous person, but some of the people in his congregation are doing the wrong thing and he gets punished for it. Can you give me an example from the Old Testament about something like this happened? Ali can Ali the, pri- the archpriest. Do you remember where he was? Which time? Who was his famous disciple? Sam. Ali was a very righteous person. He, you know, told Hannah that she's going to get, you know, a son, and he uh, prophesied her properly, and he got a son. And he knew how God speaks. So when Samuel saw the, you know, heard the voice, you know, Samuel, Samuel, and then he went to talk to Ali. I told him, look, this is, you know. Uh, the voice of God so just you know speaks O Lord for thy servant here so this was a good man what was his you know problem his sons he was not you know correct with his sons and he did not rebuke their sons correctly but wait a minute Samuel's sons were not good so why did God punish Ali and not punish Samuel for his children As a result of I don't understand. Can you repeat that? As a result of the army, 
but but again, um, as I say, uh, what's his name? Uh, Samuel's children were also corrupt. They were not judging properly, but God did not punish Samuel for that. And the answer, actually, just to make story short, the answer for that is in Ezekiel. God is fair. I mean, God is not gonna really hold. You know, if Abuna tells me, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and I go and do it and commit, you know, whatever sin Abuna warned me about, why would God hold Abuna responsible for that? Abuna is not going to be able to tie all our hands and all our feet and, you know, prevent us from doing all even, you know, things. It's not logical, logical, it's not practical, it's not fair to, you know, the priest or anybody who takes responsibility. Okay? But what does God expect of a person of responsibility? Let's... Let's read these. Ezekiel 3.17 to 3.21. Somebody read that for us. So what is expected of the servant or the priest or the bishop, you know, in, in here? Is to deliver the right message. If you see somebody who's doing the wrong thing, and just to be politically correct, or just to do, you know, to be nice to these people, or to be, you know, to remain their friend, you do not warn them, you do not tell them that what they're doing is wrong, you carry the wage of their sin. Here God says, I will ask the blood from you right? I will require his blood at your hand and this is you know a very harsh sin a harsh requirement that's why when you find the priests warn people and you know tell them what doing is wrong don't say that this abuna is you know doesn't like us or whatever or the servant is not you know our friend or whatever no they're doing what they are asked to do they're warning people of the right and the wrong that's why for example ali kahin was held accountable because he was not rebuking his children he did not tell them what they're doing is wrong versus samuel when samuel knew that his children were doing that he rebuked them in front of everyone right so that's the difference the job of the you know the servant, whether it's bishop, priest, or uh, a lay servant, is to warn people what is right and what is wrong. His, his his job is not to tie their hands and you know not let them do the right and you know not to let them do the wrong and force them to do the right thing. Even God doesn't do that. But the job is to warn and explain what is right and what is wrong. 
Right. So this bishop, his main problem was he was not he was doing a great job, but he was not he was trying to be politically correct. Right? Not fight against sin and not fight against the sinners in the proper way. Can we say we have this problem prevalent in our society today? Maybe. We will definitely will be held accountable if we see somebody who's sinning, and you know, just to be nice to them and to be their friend, ignore it and you know, or say nice words, but do not tell them that what they're doing is wrong. Definitely. I guess you shouldn't blame your feelings, but if you really don't possess that capability of telling someone, do you know how it says, like, if rebuking the fool is not worth it? It's foolish. Yes. (laughs) But we should pray for that. We should pray for that wisdom. Uh, And here, yes, here in Ezekiel, God is telling him, I tell you to rebuke someone and you don't rebuke it. You know, you don't rebuke him. See, Son of man, I have made you a watchman to the house of Israel. Therefore, here, the word of my mouth and give them warning from me so yes that requires wisdom requires inspiration from God but also if I feel that you know I'm in a position that where I should say something I should pray and let God guide me in what I say and how should I say it so it doesn't you know just throw your uh, jewels in front of the pigs and let them stumble right okay any questions Right. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give to him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knows except he who receives it. Again, the hidden manna is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God. So they will be given the Word of God to teach them what is right and what is you know wrong. But again, in eternity there is no food and there is no drink, Uh, which means that he will be fed on God's word, will be nourished by God's word and will grow in God's word itself. And the white stone, there are a couple of interpretations for the white stone. One of them is that the winners in competitions and in uh, athletic uh, competitions will receive a white stone it's not just you know a small marble in the street you know we'll find that it's actually like a precious stone a white precious stone they receive that as a sign of their victory and triumph and here Christ is saying if you triumph I will give you a white stone white represents purity and signs of you know victory but the interesting thing on this white stone I will write a name that no one knows except he who receives it so I wonder what kind of name that he will write. He's going to write, you know, the pure, the righteous, you know, the faithful servant, you know, uh, any of those names that we're going to receive if we have, you know, of the attributes or of the virtues that we're going to acquire here on earth. Is that virtue going to be written on that white stone? 
think what kind of you know name God will write for you on this white stone that you receive at the end what kind of virtue that you will get you will try to develop here on earth so Christ will reward you on that virtue that only he knows that you have worked so hard to develop this yes it says no man knows except he receives it it doesn't say something about the also that everything will be revealed like everything good and bad will be revealed each person will be revealed yes Yes, so how, how can we reconcile these two? That's, that's a very good question. Uh, again, here, I need to think about this a bit more, but, you know, uh, just a quick answer is that uh, each one of us is also asked to do things, you know, a virtue, and we should not announce it to everyone. If you're giving, you know, money to the poor, if you're serving, whatever, you're not supposed to come and announce that to everyone. You're supposed to do things, in, you know, in secret for your Father in Heaven rewards you, you know, in secret, right? So here the reward is based on your personal acts that you're doing, you know, for the sake of Christ. Uh, away from the noise, away from the publicity that everyone knows of. How to reconcile that with the end of the world? That's a very good question. I, you know, each of us is going to be rewarded differently in the second coming. It says stars is different than star in you know in our own glory. So each of us is going to be rewarded differently and based on the virtues we acquired here on earth. Okay, Mark. I don't think it says anywhere that you're going to know the business of everyone else around you. You're going to have the knowledge and the answer to everything. It doesn't mean that you're going to look at the person next to you and know all the good and the bad things they did. But it also says that you know whatever you do in secret will be announced from the rooftops. Whatever you do in secret will be announced from the rooftops. Be known to everybody. Be announced from the rooftops. Let me ask you something. If I go to heaven, right? And let's see, we all, inshallah, we all go, will go to heaven. Right? We see Christ in front of us and we see the saints. Right? Will you worry about, you know, what did I do in my previous life and what did, you know, uh, what are the wrong things or the good things I did? Or will you be more worried and be focused, and not worried, but be more focused and concentrated on Christ and His glory and the other things? Which one will be the focus of your attention? You're not going to care about me or Mark. You're going to be more focusing on Christ. Yes, you will have the knowledge, and you know my deeds and my acts will, you know, probably will be known to you know to everyone, right? which is of course the embarrassing part. But at the same time, the righteous people, you're not going to have time or interest to focus on other people. If you look at the the righteous people who lived here on earth, you know. Look at the fathers of the desert. They don't want to even talk to other people. It's not because they don't like them, but because they found their joy and their love in Jesus Christ, even here on earth. They don't want to be bothered by anything earthly or anybody on earth. If we are in heaven, even if we have the knowledge of everything, do you think we're going to care about it or we're going to go seek it? 
No, we're going to have Christ Himself that we're going to seek and He's going to occupy all of our attention. We don't care about anything else. You're not going to worry about, you know, who did what. Because now it's time for you to enjoy Christ in full and that's going to overwhelm everything you have or everything you think of. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Again, everything, everything in the book of Revelation is, you know, symbolic here. Again, we're going to see, for example, Amantonius all the way in the front, right? and we're not. We're not going to worry, you know, what you know, Amantonius did or, you know, Ambatroy did or, you know, because we're going to be focusing only on, you know, on Christ. And we're not going to be jealous of them as well. They're going to receive special rewards. You're going to find people who never thought they're going to be there, you know, ahead of us. You know, maybe we're not going to worry about, you know, all the actions they did. doesn't rhyme with these words, right? No. No man knows except yeah, so he who receives it. I'll try to dig more on, on this one, but you know. Well, you said to me also your response about the whole rooftop thing. I don't think there are rooftops. So that's maybe something on earth. I'm just trying to understand, like maybe he's going to make it clear. It's not when he says, you do something in secret and he'll let everybody know, like, open it here. I don't know, for some reason, I don't think that has anything to do with him. I think that's here, like, he'll make, if you do something in quiet, he's going to make other people know. That's possible, but also, again, in, you know, in heaven, people will, you know, can know, you know, whether what you did, whether they want to know or not. It's a different story. I don't think it's going to be relevant at that time. Right? Again, if my focus in my life, even here on earth, is Christ, I'm not going to care about, you know, what other people are doing. I'm not going to care about other things. Right? Uh, I think Amber Sanius. They used to find him that, you know, every time after communion, he comes in, receives communion, and runs away. <coughs> you know, doesn't want to talk to anybody and runs away. And one time they ran after him. I told him, you know, why are you not talking to us? He said, you know, I love you and everything, but I don't have time to waste with you. I want to be with Christ. I don't want to waste my time with you. It's the same thing. If my occupation is Christ, I don't want to know who did this, who cooked what, you know, what did this buy and why they didn't buy this and, you know, all this. This is waste of my time because my, my time, my mind is empty and my heart is empty. Even if they tell me, you know, they write down, people who have free time, they go after the tabloid and, you know, who did this and who lost weight and who bought this and who's going with this. And that's a waste of time. You have other things, to do, important, important things to do in life. You're not going to worry about the tabloids. You're not going to worry about, you know, any of these, you know, movie stars because it's a waste of time. So it's the same thing in heaven. You're more occupied with more important things. And that's what we really need to get ourselves trained on from here on earth. That we need to be occupied with Christ as much as possible. So, believe me, everything else will be you know, even work, even, you know, all the earthly desires is going to be just a waste of time and you want to focus your life and your attention and all your time on knowing Christ and being with Christ, even here on earth. So if in heaven, and you know, who cares about these things?
the other interpretation of the white stone is that in uh, in trials those people who are justified and those people who were not you know found guilty they were given a white stone to represent their innocence so that's the same thing we can look at that as also that you know if we overcome we're going to have a white stone that you know shows our innocence shows that we have overcome uh, this word and our righteous name will be written on All right. Uh, I think that's the second church, you know, third church that we have finished so far. It's nine o'clock, so let's pause there. And next week we'll try to finish the. If we're lucky, we'll finish, you know, most of the churches next week. Okay. Any questions? Okay. Thanks for your listening.